well, hello and uh, welcome everyone to the third episode of Perspective. Um, I'm Molly. I'm here with my co-host Logan, uh, as well as our very first guest on the show. Logan, do you want to introduce our first guest? Yes, we have our first guest ever. It's uh, James Shotwell. He has been doing a lot of things in music for a very long time, but we don't have to use the exact year because I'm not entirely sure. Um, but he's got a lot of expertise in podcasting, music, blogging, interviews, all those kinds of things. We're very excited to have him on here. Hi. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what to say. Uh, well, I didn't realize I was going to be your first guest, but thank you yeah. so much for having me. All right. Uh, could you introduce yourself for everyone listening and just give us a little info on what you do in the music industry? Okay. Well, uh, a short version of what I do is that I am the director of customer engagement for Holix, and we work in the cybersecurity end of the music industry. We help musicians and record labels and publicists and anyone that kind of works on the promotional side of music share new and unreleased music with the members of press and media without fear of piracy through a secure distribution platform. And then I'm also the managing editor for Substream Magazine and a host of Inside Music Podcast and co-host of another podcast called Not Quite, which isn't technically a music podcast, but it, it all ties together. Cool. Very cool. Well, um, I guess we'll start off uh, talking about, I want to talk about podcasting. <laughs> um, for everyone listening, I had uh, put something out on Twitter a while back that I was maybe going to start a podcast and I didn't know what to talk about um, or who to talk to. And then James responded and said, talk to me about podcasting. So here we are. Talking about podcasting. Talking about podcasting. On a podcast. <laughs> okay. Very self-aware of you. I'm proud. <laughs> yeah. Um, so James, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Inside Music, which is the podcast that you do for Holics, right? Yeah, so um, my job at Holix is basically to be the voice of Holix, and I have a lot of freedom with that job, so I'm allowed to try pretty much anything that comes to mind that fits into our overall idea of trying to promote a better, healthier music industry through education. So the idea behind Inside Music is a series of conversations with people from all walks of life within the music industry, because I feel like a lot of podcasts focus on... Uh, artists specifically, and there are a lot of musicians that appear on Inside Music, but a lot of the ones that come on also do something else, or there's something unique about them, but there's also publicists and a lot of uh, bloggers and people that might not otherwise be considered... Um I guess, noteworthy, which is, I don't mean that in like, an, like a mean way, but like they're not somebody that you're going to, you know, Google and there's going to be a Wikipedia page for them necessarily. But they're very important to the day-to-day -day life of probably your favorite artist or they are involved in something that you use every day or something along those lines. So it's really just to look at the very average lives of people who work in the music industry. Right, right on. Um, so how did the show, I mean, actually get started? I mean, I know you said you have a lot of freedom um but was this something that you came to your boss at holics and said hey i'm gonna do a podcast um or did he kind of float that idea to you what was your uh what was the origin of it well i i'm a huge podcast fan i actually i i prefer stitcher i know everyone has like their preferred podcast listening app i'm a big stitcher believer even though they have been pretty faulty over the years but i recently noticed this morning that i have listened to 360 days worth of podcasts over however long i've used the stitcher app which is a, a, a lot of wow. yeah <laughs> at this point i've spent a year of my life listening to other people talk and uh <laughs> wow. it, that's, that's, it, it's kind of baffling to me but uh 
at some point in those 360 days, I realized that I could probably start my own podcast because most of the podcasts I love boil down to two people having a conversation about something that they both enjoy. Um, so I pitched it to my boss is exactly that. And Matt's not that much older than me. He's my boss at Holix. He's the guy in command, the creator, the founder. Uh, he's just turned 40 this year. So we're only about 11 years apart, but he's not a big podcast guy. So he kind of asked me a bunch of questions about it. And he's like, sure. How much is it going to cost? I was like, basically nothing. I just need a SoundCloud Pro account. And he was like, okay, right. that sounds that sounds fine. <laughs> Go ahead and go for it. So I uh, just started doing the podcast that way. And I actually wanted him to be guest number one and guest number 50 and guest number 100. And he has found a way to not be any of those. Um, right, so Matt, had- is, Matt is not that guy. <laughs> um, he, he's done a few uh, recorded interviews and you will find them if you get out there and look around the internet, you can find them. But he largely prefers to be email and let me be the voice in the face. So I guess that's, that's what I'm doing here even. So that's kind of how the show got started. And then at that point, he just kind of asked me what the numbers were. And uh, thankfully, they've been pretty positive and they've continued to grow over the years. And we've had a few kind of bigger guests that kind of take the show up to a new plateau every few months. And so as long as that keeps happening, he doesn't really have a problem with it. He doesn't 100% understand it or like how two and a half hours of talking about (laughs) nonsense turns into sales. But the company keeps growing. So as long as that happens, it's like, well, something works. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, so something that I've been curious about, and this is something that, you know, both I'm curious about in, in terms of your show and that Logan and I, um, who are both, you know, we've both been writing about music for a long time, have interviewed plenty of, of artists. But when you're going to choose someone to be a guest on Inside Music, like what what goes into your mind? What do you look for in a potential guest? Um, you know, how do you approach that? Or do you approach that at all differently than, you know, interviewing someone for like a written feature? Well, I, uh, I've always had an knack for doing really long interviews, which makes me very bad at written features because I'm also very bad at transcription. Uh, and I'm not bad at it. I'm just lazy. So podcasting always appeals to me because it's like you get to have the long form interview without the writing and I never knew that that was like something that was very important to me, but it, it turned out that I, I very much enjoy it because I feel I can get a lot deeper with people. And I think there's there's something about the idea of podcasting and when, it, when it's good, when it's really, really good, you forget that there's a recording happening and you forget that you're talking to somebody who is uh, different than you or more famous than you or more successful or less, whatever the case may be. You forget about all of that and you, you're just two people having a conversation and it all feels very seamless and it feels like, ah, this is how we should be able to communicate with each other all the time. And for so, some reason, it takes this crazy thing called podcasting to make it happen. So when I'm looking for a guest, I, I, I think all great podcasts start with first having an interest in who you're talking to or what you're talking about. So a lot of the earliest episodes are my friends because it's easiest to talk to your friends and then over time it just became you had your dad on the show at one point didn't you yeah my dad has been on the show pretty early on actually that's so Uh, cool yeah, well, you know, it's it's a confusing thing. Um, I'll, I'll answer the first question, and we'll get to the dad thing. But the, the first, the answer to the guest thing is basically it's something that I, I very much find interesting, and I like, or I have a question about something, and I want somebody that can tell me the answer to it. Because I'm I'm like a I struggle with anxiety across like all facets of life, but uh, especially when it comes to understanding the music business, I get really crazy about things I don't understand. So it can it can be fun to have somebody on that like I had somebody that was a flow arts person, which for any 
anyone that's outside of EDM is like the people with hula hoops at festivals. Like those, those are flow arts people. So I had somebody that does that or wants to do that professionally come on the show and kind of tell the story of how they got into it and how people make money at it, which I never understood and do all that. So as long as I find it interesting, I think it'll make for a good show. But when it, when it comes to my dad, the, the other half of that is that I feel like the only reason anyone would listen to my podcast as opposed to anybody else's is that they like me on some level. So I'm always looking for, it, it goes with, along with like, I want a guest that's interesting to me because that tells you something about who I am as a person. Like, oh, James is talking okay. to this, so he must like that thing. So then you understand me a little bit better. So having someone like my dad on, or I have a, I've had Jacob Tinder on the show a few times, writer and blogger and podcaster. He's somebody that's worked with me for a lot of years. And so we have this rapport and these stories that we can share that I feel like lets the listener know me a little bit better. So that when I have a guest on that maybe doesn't appeal to you or it's somebody you've never heard of, you'll still listen because hopefully we've agreed on something else you've heard on the show so when you're you know one of my questions i suppose is when you're doing these podcasts with guests and friends whoever it may be how do you keep a good conversation like what do you know when you're talking to these people you're going to talk about you know this is going to be interesting or we think people are going to like this or is it any kind of thing like that or do you just roll with it and just kind of see where it goes well, unfortunately, I think everyone knows whether or not a, a conversation is going to be good pretty quickly. You know what I mean? Like you, if you tune into a podcast and they, there's that dead silence up front or it sounds heavily edited, you know that maybe they took a little while to get over it with each other. My thing right. is that I try to have some questions in advance. I really hate having a structure to the show. I usually have something that I, I have some very general things I want to know. I assume that if it's a musician or somebody who's doing a promotional tour of some kind that we have to talk about X, be it song, tour, whatever it may be. And then I try to find some very weird little tidbit of that, that I definitely want to ask them. So I have my exclusive, you know, a little soundbite that maybe we can pull out of it. But overall, I'm just trying to get to know that person as a human outside of it. Like when they're, when they're sitting at home right before they grab their phone to search Twitter and see if people are interacting with them, I want to know what they were doing like right then, like right before they picked up the phone. And I, so a good conversation to me is when it feels like we're talking about anything other than what they're on the show to promote. Um, but when it's bad, I usually just try to figure out how to get out of it as fast as possible. There are some episodes <laughs> of Inside Music, and I, I mean, and it's nothing against the guests, because I'm sure that they're all, I'm sure they are mostly good people. Um, but every now and then, you know, you've agreed to do something, you think it's going to be really good, you think it's going to be super insightful, or like, you think you get it, and then you start talking to the person, you're like, oh, we don't, we are not like we don't exist in the same world or we just, this isn't happening. It's like when you, it's like if you've ever been on like a blind date or something like that and you just immediately like, eh, but there's no like swiping option. It's real life. So you have to be like, well, we'll just get off the phone. Like I'll just hurry up and be like, well, this, this, this episode's like 22 minutes. It's okay. The rest are all an hour long. This one's 22. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. But you know, some people, some people just don't want to open up like that. Right. I mean, I, I don't know, Logan, I don't know if you have any like specific examples that come to mind and, and we're not going to, you know, go into who was our, our worst interview, but I, I can even say in, in my years of, you know, interviewing people for written features that I've had some where I go in and I have like, you know, so much I want to talk about so many things. I am so excited and I, you know, I know like we can talk about this and that and how does this relate? And then the person gives you like one word answers and it's just like, well, <laughs> well, shit, you know, where, where do you go from there? Um, but I guess sometimes you do have to just kind of make, you know, make the best and just run with what you're given. Um, 
you definitely can't always uh <laughs> you can't control what another person's gonna say no and sometimes it's best if you just like walk away from the conversation because sometimes the other person might not realize they're making an ass out of themselves or like that maybe they're saying something that their team or people wouldn't want them to discuss at length and you're like oh maybe oh i've been there yeah I've so there. <laughs> so like this is so out of date that it, it works for a good story but like i remember back when i was in the early days of under the gun i remember when red jumpsuit apparatus first became a huge band and we got to sit down wow, with a long yeah, time ago. A long time ago, right? That's <laughs> at the beginning of this, Logan, you mentioned how long I'd been in music and I was like, I've never yeah. felt more old than during Wait, this. So when, when did you start? Uh, when did you start under the gun? Um I started under the gun in two thousand eight. Yeah. Wow. So March fifteenth, two thousand eight, but I guess you could say I technically started in music. I, I opened I helped I helped reopen a venue in my hometown when I was fourteen and I turned thirty this year, so sixteen years ago. Wow. Yeah. You've been around the block a few times. My music career is old enough to have a driver's permit. I just realized that in this conversation. So weird. Well, there I, you go. I, realized, uh, <laughs> I realized last year, like when I was, you know, Good Charlotte was on Warp Tour last year. And that's been my favorite band since I was 11 years old. And I realized that I had been listening to them for longer than like how old I was when I started listening to them yeah it was a very weird realization that's weird and now the next weird part which is where i am now is that like all of those guys follow you on twitter and they'll just dm you and be like that was really funny and you're like this is no we can't <laughs> we can't have this relationship because <laughs> you're still in like the headspace of like fan artists you're like no 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 right. you're good charlotte right. and then you're like no nah, benji madden's actually just sitting on his couch like i am and he's like oh that was right. humorous <laughs> And he's just sitting there and he was like, oh, he's just kind of scrolling through Twitter. And next thing, you know, he's like, haha, that was funny. You're like, wait, what? Why? Well, I got a I got a notification on Facebook uh, that three years ago yesterday, uh, Joel Madden had tweeted out, like, what are the coolest music blogs right now? So, of course, I immediately respond with circlesandsoundwaves.com. And he responds, nice one. Uh and then I said, oh, we should, like, do an interview. And he says, yeah, totally down for it. Um, it never happened. It, you know, still is something I'm trying to make happen. But, yeah, sometimes, you know, those those random Twitter interactions, uh, you know, actually actually get a response, which is weird, but can be very cool, I guess. I've, I've learned over time that if you meet somebody that you idolize and they are so nice to you that they offer to do something for you, you always say yes and you always, like, you have that fan moment where you're like, oh my god, I can't believe that, like, I'm gonna do blank with blank and then you never yeah. expect it to happen. Like, it's, it may, it's never going to happen. Like, it might, in a rare instance, it might happen. You might become, like, lifelong best friends or you might just have a good memory, but, like, um, I work this charity event where I do uh, photography. Dennis Leary has a charity event in Boston every year comics come home and three years in a row I was one of the house photographers and every year Jimmy Fallon is one of the guests and every year I would get to hang out with Jimmy Allen Jimmy Fallon all day and this past year the third year we finally like had a conversation and I was telling him how much I love his his one stand-up album the bathroom wall and he was like did you know that we made vinyl 
but the label didn't want to sell them. So they just sit in a storage locker in New York City with a lot of other stuff that I just keep. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, do you want one? And I was like, totally. I would love a copy of that. <laughs> and he like, you know, so his, like his assistant was there and he was like, hey, uh, you know, Monica, whatever her name is, take, take his information. And he like, he kept talking to me the rest of the day. He was like, I'm so glad that you remembered that man, blah, blah, blah. She took my information. He even like favor did some tweets I wrote where I was like, I just, Jimmy Fallon and I talked about the bathroom wall on vinyl. I can't believe this. He's going to help me out. And he was like, happy to help, blah, blah, blah. It, that was like November. I have not seen that record. <laughs> But I was just right. like, well, well, he meant well. He meant well. Like, I had my moment. Like, he was like, you know, it wasn't about the actual event. It was just like, we had that moment where he was like, you care about that thing? I care about that thing. And I was like, oh, right. okay. Right. That's all, that's all you found, really uh, need. I found, so I was really into Major League when they were a band. Um, and they had uh, Dan Bassini, who was he's a photographer, had done this, like, little zine. Um, he went on tour with them, like, six or seven years ago did this zine called from states away and i never got a copy of it um because i you know i probably was broke at the time and just didn't order it um and i and i emailed him like last month and i was like hey do you still have any and he said i don't and he like went to his parents house and looked for this like six-year-old major league zine uh and he was like, I don't have any copies. But then he sent me the he just sent me the PDF, which was such a nice thing. And and obviously that's different from, you know, Jimmy Fallon or Good Charlotte or some like major artist. But it's, you know, sometimes when people people are really nice sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes it happens really unexpectedly. Um, yeah. But some of those interactions are really cool. Sometimes you learn that you're uh that you you that they consider you an equal, but you don't consider them an like you know what I mean? Oh, like that's so weird. Oh, yeah, it's weird. It's, where you're like, oh, are we friends? <laughs> it's it's weird, and I uh, I mean, I started, I started. So my first involvement in music, um, I mean, if we're really gonna go back, like I had you know some really failed attempts at blogging when I was like 15 in high school and everything, um. And, but then it was when I was in college, I would have been like, I just turned 19. I started booking shows on campus, started my site, doing interviews, like the end of that year. And for the first, I mean, really for a long time, I felt like, okay, cool. Like, you know, this band is doing a really nice thing by letting me interview them. Um, which it, it, it is, you know, they still, no matter the band, they don't have to take 15 or 20 or 30 minutes or whatever out of their day to talk about to talk you know to some blogger um but it took being involved in it you know for a little bit till I started getting all these press releases sent to me all the time people asking me you know oh will you interview this person will you do this till I started like seeing the same people around multiple times that I started to feel like you know like an equal like okay like I'm actually doing something which is is weird but it's definitely you know and and obviously every relationship you have with a with a person with an artist or someone in the industry is different but it uh it's kind of a cool realization when you realize okay like I am an equal or a an a peer to this person yeah you know I would say my first experience with that too was like the very first time like a publicist asked me if I wanted to get like guest listed for a concert and i was like well i guess i was like i didn't know i could do that but sure that sounds like fun 
And he was like, okay, well, you know, we can put you down. And he's like, you don't have to worry about getting a ticket. Then I was like, well, all right, that works too. And then it just kind of like went from there. And, you know, he told me that that's something that happens all the time. Or, you know, happens often, I guess, you know, when you do an interview with a band or whoever it might be. And so that was just kind of like a really weird realization when I was like, well, I guess this can be something and I can, you know, save money, you know, and then I ended up not saving money. But that was, right, that was right. the intention at the time was it was something that was just kind of so cool and I've never really forgot that first time. Yeah. James, I've been uh, I've been wondering so you've done probably like what over 100 episodes of Inside Music. Yeah. Um and you have like just a couple of your other show not quite. Um so I, you know, as as you do, I struggle with anxiety in in many ways and uh at the end of our first episode, uh, recording our first episode, Logan and I both just went to each other and go, I need a drink. Uh, and neither of us actually drink. So it was just just our expression of, oh, my God, uh, my nerves are just shot right now. Uh, were you pretty nervous when you started doing this? I mean, have you have you gotten over nerves to any extent at all? Um, I don't get nervous about this because I don't have to be in front of people. I can be myself over a podcast really easily. Um, Fortunately, I have gotten to speak at a few conferences and some schools have me out to talk about working in the music industry. And when I do that, I get really nervous and I swear a lot more, which is, you know, ironic. How does does swearing go over like at colleges? Well, you know, it depends. Like, um, there's a school in Pennsylvania that I love to visit that's in the mountains. They have a tiny music business program. And for whatever reason, they like to have me out. And we spend, like, we spend hours together. I do, I do a presentation about, like, some tips and tricks for the industry. And then I usually, anytime I do a school appearance, it kind of ends with, like, a, an extended Q&A period. I've, you know, I've worked in a venue and I was in bands. And I did tour management. And I've done the website and the podcast. And I've, I've just kind of done a little bit of everything. So I basically let uh, all of the music business students just kind of pick my brain, ask me questions how do you do this how does licensing work whatever and I, I tell them stories and so by that point it's we've been together for over an hour or so and if I feel like the head professor is pretty cool and usually they are because they're the head of music business at a college um usually they're pretty cool with me letting it slip but I, I try to build it I, I don't just like drop a bunch of f-bombs and I, I try to never say <laughs> never do any just of that build it, build it up. but there's I'll, I'll say some shit or I'll, I'll just be like you know and, and sometimes I'll just I'll just I'll work my way into a corner where there's like no other word that'll work and like everyone in the work room knows I'm gonna say it anyway so I'll just like let yeah. it slip and then I'll apologize after <laughs> the fact and uh <laughs> You know, it's, uh, I'm like, well, they are, you know, I'm already here. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to like scold me after the fact, but like no one's ever pulled me off stage or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I've actually, I went to this God awful conference in another part of Pennsylvania in February. And I was, I was like disgusted by some of the things other people on the panel said. And I was like, okay, so there is a line and I don't come anywhere near it because I I heard it get crossed. And I was like, oh no, it's okay. A little swearing is all right. Like whatever you have to say won't be nearly as bad. Oh yeah, no. There's there's this like, no matter how uh, mature or progressive the industry gets, there will always be like some dude who works in rock and roll who thinks everything should turn into like, um, for lack of a better phrase, bitches and brews parties. Which is like how this guy was trying to tell people to like sell their music. He was like, just get some girls in bikinis and uh, free shots, and people will come out to whatever event you're trying to host. Oh geez. Just like, and I'm like, oh my god, why am I here? I can't believe that these people that I like traveled across the country to sit next to this guy. <laughs> um, 
So things like that happen and you're just like, okay, well, I might swear, but at least I'm not giving people terrible advice when I do it. So it's okay. I usually, the only people I ever have to apologize to are, are my parents. They hate the swearing. I think we've all apologized to our parents multiple yeah. times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I told my dad, my, uh, my parents asked about my podcast, like, oh, what's it called? Where can I find it? And I said, you know, it's on iTunes. That's where you find it. Um, so, uh, dad, if you are listening, uh, you know, we swear, sorry. Um, but I hope you'll still listen. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone's parents like, like swearing, but you know, sometimes, sometimes they learn to deal sometimes. I mean, yeah, I'm used to my being mom. a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> my mom still corrects me if I use the word sucks in front of her. So I just, what I are just you supposed to say instead. Stinks, awful, bad. I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, there's a lot of different words. Like if my dad, I always tell people my dad is like Ned Flanders. Like my parents don't swear or anything like that ever. Like my dad hits his hand with a hammer. He says fudge. Like just a, just like a Christmas wow. story. Like that's, that's wow. my, those are my parents. So we hit this point a few years ago. Um, I got my, my name featured on a movie poster for this movie Contracted. That's like about a girl that uh, gets an SD that basically makes her rot. But it was in theaters. Oh and God. so in theaters all over the world they had this poster that had like my quote at the top of it and so i was and it was in the trailers and my parents watched it and they were like we don't think this is a movie for us and i was like it definitely isn't um and ever since then we've kind of just had this unspoken thing where they're like we're proud of you but what you're into isn't for us necessarily and i'm, and I'm okay with that that's perfectly fine because I, I i don't think i could live with myself if my parents followed my every recommendation right right it's uh I think something that we all kind of experience to, to some degree and, and to differing degree is that as you get older, uh, you know, you want you want your parents to support you. I think everyone always wants their parents to, like, support what they do, you know, in, in whatever way, but they don't necessarily need to follow <laughs> follow everything um, and do, you know, exactly like do or, or listen to or every single thing. Um, but it's it's good to know that they care. Um but your parents are James. You say your parents are pretty, pretty cool with what you do in general. Supportive of it. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I um, I used to be very close to a woman who worked for Warner Brothers Publicity that was a few years older than me, and her mom always used to describe her. She had two sisters. One was a doctor, and I think one was a teacher, and she worked for Warner Brothers. And her mom always used to say that like one helped people, one helped their children, and one had a lot of fun. And I think my parents have become those people that they're like James. James is having fun. Like that's what they just yeah, tell people. I I went to uh to college originally. I was going to be an engineering major. Uh, uh I was going to be biomedical engineering and pre med, and I was going to be like an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and a lot of people are like very surprised when I tell them this, but you know, like I was I was very good in my science classes in high school. Um, pretty much like mostly A's in those classes. And English and writing courses were like my worst classes in high school. So, you know, the engineering pre-med route made sense. Um, and then I, I once I got to college, switched my major and my career plan pretty quickly. But I, I still get the, well, you could go back to med school still if you really wanted. You know, there are there are ways to do it if you want. Uh, but, you know, at, at this point, I'm. I, I would say about 100% certain or 99.99% or certain I, I'm never going to medical school. I, you know, I've, I've found where, where I want to be uh, and I'm doing it, you know, to, to whatever degree I can. So, 
I guess this is a, a question for uh, both of you, Logan and James. Um, have you guys always known that you wanted to be in music? Go ahead, Logan. Um, no, no, I have not. I actually, for the longest time, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I quickly, well, I guess not quickly. This was a, like a dream for a while, and then when I was a junior in high school, I did this internship through school with a um, defense attorney, and I realized how awful that would have been for me. And I was like, this is not fun. Like, I was there for the day-to-day aspect of it. And I never wanted what? to really do it just because of, like, TV shows. But I was sitting there, you know, on a daily basis. And I was like, this just sucks. Like, it's... What What did you not like about it? It's, a, it's very tedious. Um, there's, like, things that you do on a daily basis that's kind of just things I could never see my, I mean, it's not, I guess, any different and it's most basic components than a regular office job. Um, but it's obviously more complex due to, you know, the things they're doing. And it kind of depends obviously on the size of your law firm and how recognizable you are and, you know, your competitors and all that kind of things. But it's just like, and maybe, maybe it's just because of who I was. Like, I was just, like, interning, so I wasn't, like, the big guy there or anything. So maybe it would have been different. But it was just a lot of, like, running around and always kind of doing small things. And you were always working on cases, but you weren't always, like, doing things that you wanted to do with them. And so you're kind of stuck, you know. Obviously, as a defense attorney, you get to take on what you want to take on. But it's just a lot more work that goes into it that I think a lot of people realize and even a lot of people do realize how much work it is and it's not just as simple as what you see on TV but I would still say it's probably 50 times worse than what you could think it is just the amount of like research you need to do and the resources you have you know you don't have to know everything but you have to know a vast majority of it and at least where you can find it and it's not always easy to find either because you're going to have so many different books that you need to know or at least need to have and keep up on and laws are always changing and you need to make sure you have the most updated books and then you need to find the books. You need to organize the books. And I'm just not like that kind of person. So I can stay organized in my own little world, but when it comes to things like that, I mean, that's just something that I guess I couldn't really do and it was fun for the time that I was there interning but afterwards I was just like no plus law school is expensive and I was just like no that's just very expensive yeah and I was coming out of high school and I certainly didn't want to do seven more years of school and then do schooling basically for the rest of my life because you got to keep up on it obviously and I was I was like always kind of concerned and my dad he encouraged me but at the same time he was like just make sure you know this is what you want to do because you know, you go through seven years of school and then you got to pass the bar exam. And if you don't pass the bar exam, then you just wasted all your money. And I mean, you can retake it. Right. It's, you know, it's so (laughs) terrifying. It's, it's not cheap. And then it's hard to get into law school. And then everything's competitive there too, obviously. I mean, every like industry is competitive, but that's, I think, I mean, I I don't obviously know because I'm not in it, but I would assume it's probably more competitive just because of everyone's end goal. And it's so hard and, you know, probably not many people are trying to help you out, you know, other than your professors. And even they're probably not trying to help you out too much because they have to make sure you know it. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't assume it's something because they don't want to help you. They probably help you as much as you can or much as they can. But for something like that, it's not like, oh, you can, you know, 
we'll, we'll help you this time and hopefully you get it next time. It's just, you know, you need to learn it, you know, obviously. So it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more tougher than I thought it would be. And it's, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I didn't do it cause I would still be in school now. I mean, I'm in school now, but I took like a few years off. So then I would still have like a year or two left of school and it's still got to take the bar exams and that's going to be fun. Cool. Yeah. So James, I guess, so I wanted to, you know, my, my kind of background, Logan told his, but have you always known you wanted to be in music? Yeah, I, um, I started, uh, like I said earlier, I helped open a venue in my hometown when I was uh, 14 years old using a city grant that was, you know, available for arts funding in the, in the town. I almost said city, but, uh, I I come from a town of like 1200 people. So it's very little. So there wasn't a lot of competition for how those funds would get dispersed. So I got just enough to open the venue. The venue had already existed. It was open when my family moved there when I was 10. They existed for like two and a half years and they closed. Um, so I got enough money to put on one show and that show made enough money to put on another show and that kind of kept happening for the next uh, four years until I graduated high school and then it closed in the summer after I graduated we put on like one big outdoor show as like the final show and it hasn't been open since so uh, from that point I uh, kind of got into the whole world of music and I was attending concerts which I had been doing my whole life but now I was like going as like a promoter and I was meeting bands and people were staying at my house and I got into playing music and I toured for a while and so by the time I got to college like I was already street teaming for a record label and I had you know booked national touring bands and I had all this experience and so I was pretty much on the fast track uh, except for the part where I got paid to do it all but in terms of you know experience and getting my foot in the door yeah <laughs> yeah I think that's something uh, a lot of a lot of people face but I think uh I mean I you know so I ended up getting my degree in psychology because uh, you know in I, I guess I gave the short story of you know I knew I didn't want to be engineering and then I figured out I wanted to be in music uh I at some point for for a while thought for a little while I thought I wanted to be uh, I guess some sort of counselor or do you know psychology research because uh, I'm very passionate about you know mental health um, and that kind of advocacy um, and by the time I realized not too long after that that okay like I actually want to be in music I'm gonna stop messing around because you know deep down this is actually what I've wanted to do since I was 13 uh, I just hadn't started doing it um I realized I couldn't finish like a marketing or a business major and graduate in four years. And I had a scholarship uh, that I had that I wanted to keep, you know, uh, that I would only have for four years. So I said, all right, I'm going to take psychology. I'm going to, you know, and that's going to be my major because that was an easy major. I took a minor in marketing uh, and I ended up taking a class called history of rock and roll, which, you know, being in Cleveland was cool because like we had someone from the rock and roll hall of fame come and like guest speak in our class um and taking that class is you know kind of what led me into music writing and eventually starting my own blog um but james i've always like i've always been curious how did you how did you find yourself in the writing side of the world 
Uh, well, somebody, I, I was looking for something new to do in college. I had been doing uh, radio and uh, promoting for a venue called The Skeletons in Grand Rapids that no longer exists, and I was doing Victory Record Street team promotion, and I was looking for something new to try, and somebody connected me with a friend who was starting, a friend of theirs that was starting a music blog out of uh, Western Michigan University. I'm, I was going to school in Big Rapids from Michigan, from Michigan. Um, and uh, we connected over there, and he gave me an opportunity, so I wrote for him for a few months at a website that no longer exists called High Beam Review, and I realized at some point that I could just do the same thing myself and make all the connections, because he wasn't a music industry person, he just wanted the free music, and I found out later that he actually ran like a piracy group, and the site was a front to get music to leak. Oh, wow. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which, so now my career's come full circle, and now I fight piracy. Yeah, wow. Um, wow. So when I when I kind of found all that out, I left the site and I started my own uh, blog spot that then became Under the Gun Review a couple of months after that. But it was really all started by um, uh, the writing. I can't tell you exactly why I decided to write, but I started my own website for sure because I read Steal This Book by Abby Hoffman, who used to be a very prolific activist in the '60s and '70s until he, uh, you know, until drugs ruined him. But if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, he's the guy wearing the American flag T-shirt that Forrest says uses the F word a lot. And he wrote this book called Steal This Book that was all about how to like screw the government, screw the establishment, whatever. And every single chapter is how to do something that you shouldn't be able to do for free for free. Uh, like stealing books, and one of the record, one of the chapters is on getting free music and free concert tickets, and uh, it was all about. So the idea in the '70s was that you would go to like a um, like a printer and you would make a fake magazine cover that promoted some like Rock Monthly, and you would mail that copy of that magazine cover to a whole bunch of record labels, and you'd be like, I have a Rock magazine based out of wherever I live, and they would send you free records to put into that magazine that doesn't actually exist. How would they know it doesn't exist? You know, if it's not sold where they are, they would never see it because the internet didn't exist. No internet. Right, right. So I basically took that theory and I was like, all right, well, um, this is, you know, a, more than a decade ago on the internet basically now. Uh, so people weren't as up on analytics and everything. And I was like, all right, well, if I make a really good looking website, people probably won't know the difference between me, somebody who doesn't know what he's doing, and somebody who might actually have a clue of what they're doing online. And it, and it kind of worked. Like, it kind of just kind of acted like I was supposed to be there. And it, it worked. Yeah, I think uh, I, I had no clue also. When I started my website, uh, I had no clue what I was doing at all. Um, and it's funny because I see, you know, in all these, like, networking groups on Facebook, um, and, you know, I, I meet people when I go to shows and everything, people who want to start their own website or blog or they want to start interviewing bands or they want to be a photographer. And it's so funny because now I feel like I, I have at least some advice that I can give people, you know, tell them at least how I got where I was. But it's also a funny narrative because I try to say, OK, well, this is, you know, maybe some things you should do that are a good idea. but realistically when I was starting out I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing it took me like four months to buy a domain name because I, I guess I thought I, I don't know I just I thought it was much more complicated and expensive than it was um and, and you know for the couple months that I was like dot tumblr.com it was fine but you know <laughs> to anyone listening now if you are starting your own blog or website buy your domain name like 
as soon as you as soon as you can don't don't wait four months like i did oh absolutely i waited a very long time as well and it made it kind of hard too because it was like oh it's just a tumblr blog like it's not that serious like we're not gonna do anything with you and we're certainly not gonna give you like an interview or like tickets or anything so right right it's it's just like no you know they're not (laughs) they're not gonna be interested in something that has you know just could be some I mean, Tumblr's got this negative connotation to it anyway, you know, obviously. So it's just like anyone can start a Tumblr. So, But you had, I mean, to be fair, like for for a long time, one of the, I would say definitely one of the most, I, I don't know if important is the right word, but yeah, one of the most important and relevant music blogs and, you know, the alternative scene, for lack of a better word, was Property of Zach, which was on Tumblr. Um and I mean, I think, you know, and my site's on Tumblr because I, when I started it, well, Property of Zach was on Tumblr and Tumblr seems pretty easy to figure out. So I guess I'll go with that. Um, but, you know, when when Property of Zach started, I would I would argue Tumblr was just where people were, you know, Um I mean, Tumblr is still where people are. I mean, Tumblr massively controls the young audience demographic. I think what I think the thing that people in the alternative scene get confused with, and it happens to every single person in every single generation of the alternative scene. It happened to me like five years ago, and now I get to watch it happen to like your generation of people, which is fantastic. But it's this <laughs> it's this weird moment where you realize that you get older, but the scene stays the same age. Like yeah, the kids that love that website. The same demographic that loved your website, loved Tumblr when Property Zach was like that, those kids are still there. It's the rest of us who got older. Like the thing that changes is not is not the audience because Tumblr is still huge. They still can't turn a profit, but they still own that market and they are still the source of most <laughs> things that go viral in the world. Most trends and all that, that's still a Tumblr thing. Um, you just got older, unfortunately, and I got older. <laughs> Getting getting older is is very very weird. Like I'm I'm 25. I'm gonna be 26 next month. Well, and I, go <laughs> ahead. I still feel like I'm like 18. Like you know, discovering, which I guess is good that I'm still like just excited to like discover you know new new bands and everything. But every once in a while, right? It's like you know I have the moments like that where I'm like, oh my god, like these kids are still the same age. I'm getting older this, this is i you know for a lot of people i i have to filter it through the lens of like this is why people get mad about alternative press because it's oh, not okay. it's not that the magazine is worse now it's just that they're not covering bands that appeal to your demographic because you got older and when you were young and you would see and you'd be like why was well who was soundgarden on the cover like soundgarden was on the cover of alternative press before i was reading alternative press and i'm sure that when you know fallout boy was first on the cover the guys who bought the soundgarden issue were like who the hell is this you know what i mean like there's it, it's happened over and over again it's just this is the latest wave of people being like alternative press isn't who they used to be well yeah well the people that buy their magazine aren't who they used to be it's 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 the people that succeed are the ones who grasp that the thing is is that uh, especially in like your mid or early to mid 20s you kind of have to realize for the first time that the audience that you're writing for might not be the same age as you anymore and if they are then what does that say about the things you should be covering oh yeah i would say right, that i think Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I I was going to say, and this is something that I've kind of, and and I guess is like a continuing question, um, but it's, 
do I, you know, do I go with the people that have been, you know, reading my website and reading my writing since I started writing, you know, six, six and a half years ago and like see, okay, what kind of stuff are these people into now? Or do I go with, okay, what, what kind of stuff are 19 year olds into now and focus on that? And that's kind of, (coughs) sorry, that's kind of an ongoing question that, that I have and that I think a lot of us have. And it's, you know, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of tough there, too, because you really do have to balance out, you know, who you want to target. And then, you know, kind of back to James's point with all, you know, alternative press, they obviously have changed a lot over the years. But, you know, and sometimes I look at their articles and I'm going like, oh, I don't want to read that. You know, why did they write that? But also, I mean, they're not writing it for me, you know, and I'm certainly not someone who's going to like bash them for doing that. I mean, I think some of their articles are a bit goofy sometimes, but like at the same time, you know, again, I'm not the one they're writing it for and it's, they're doing what they're doing and they've been successful at it for so long. So, I mean, I'm not really in any place to criticize them for that, you know, so they've done it and they've succeeded at what they did in the past. And so they're kind of adjusting, you know, get to James's point, you got to stick around and they can't just be, you know, just a magazine forever. So I think this is, you know, what they're doing. Well, you know, scientifically speaking, there comes a point, uh, and I forget the age, it's, it's a little different for everybody, but there comes a point where we kind of, our brains kind of stop being all that interested in new music. Like you kind of, it's not that you, you hate new music, but the ability of the brain to fall in love with the song, like the way you did when you were 13 years old, you just, you, you just can't do it anymore. Like your brain has heard all of the first time I fell in love forever songs. And it just, it, it changes the way you relate to music changes. And if you want to stay in this industry from a writing perspective, you have to make a choice where it is I'm going to accept that there are things I will not understand about the younger generation and I'm going to focus on telling the stories of those people first or I'm going to hitch my ride to the genre and stuff that I do know and I have been covering for the majority of my career up to this point as those artists carry on into the second, third, and fourth stages of their career. And you can go either way. No one's to say which is one. Alternative press as a publication tends to stick to the younger demographic. The people who write for alternative press more often than not eventually outgrow it and move on. There are a few exceptions. Obviously, Pettigrew, Shea, the core team members. But this is something I've been going through in my own life, you know, I I love to write about a band like Taking Back Sunday, for example, but I have done it for a decade at this point, and I have to ask myself, like, how much more could I say about the band? How much more does the band have to say? And is there anyone that cares to hear me say anything else on the topic? Right, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, something, the band that comes to mind immediately as, you know, one of the, the younger generation one, I guess, is 21 Pilots. Um, you know, I, I saw them at the Grog Shop in Cleveland, which is, you know, like 400 people capacity. And this was like right after they had, you know, signed to Feel by Ramen, I want to say a couple months after. And I thought it was really cool, but I really have never, maybe, um, oh, sorry. <coughs> maybe it's, it's, you know, my fault for not taking the time to like invest more time into listening to that band. But that's a band that, you know, I realize kids are saying the same things about 21 Pilots that they said about My Chemical Romance, you know, when I was 15. Like, this band saved my life, and I'm going to dress like this band. You know, I'm going to dress up as so-and-so for Halloween, and I'm going to wait outside in line for their concert for 12 hours so I can be in the front row. Um mm-hmm. 
Oh, geez, I have an embarrassing story about 21 Pilots, but like... Oh, do tell, do tell. So, first of all, I mean, obviously, I'm from, like, they're from Columbus, and that's where I live, and like, so I saw them uh, open this very tiny, this, like, club. It was actually, like, a teen club when those were a thing, but like, they did concerts or whatever on weekends, and so 21 Pilots opened a show for this band called Challenger, and then no one really cared at that time, but, and then they're like... A few months later, they headlined that, and they had put out, like, regional at best at this time or whatever, and I went to that, and then they signed to Fueled by Raymond, and I was like, nah, they're not going to get that popular, and I got into this argument with some guy on Twitter. He was like, they're going to be huge. Just watch. I was like, no, they're not going to be huge. There's no way. I've been watching them, and I mean, they were getting big in Columbus, obviously. I mean, they were, like, jumping in venues, like, rapidly here. But I was still just like, nah, there's no way. And then here I am eating my words three years you know, later or so. And it's just like, wow, that was embarrassing. Yeah, I had, uh, it would have been about six years ago now. I, uh, you know, I saw the story so far and I did not think that band, it was like their first time coming out East at all, really. Because um, they're from California. And I I think I even wrote this in my review that I was like, well, they're pretty good, but, you know, I don't really see them ever becoming a big band. And, uh, you know, guess who totally, totally ate her words when they have been on, you know, Warped Tour main stage and they tour the world and they're this huge thing right now. Um, you both pick bands that are right. outside of your demographics. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think goes yeah. back to the point I just made. You both, you both just, you both just did the thing I was talking about. You're both like, this is dumb. This is not for me. And then, yeah, that, right, this is what right. You both just told the story of how you realized you were getting older. So, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, this, this feels great. <laughs> That's how it happens. Right. Uh, so, James, I want to I want to turn that around to you. Uh, have you ever had that moment where, <laughs> similar to Logan and I, I guess, where you realize? Oh shit! I'm getting older. in In relation to any ba- you know any bands you've uh, been wrong about, uh, constantly. And what bands were they? All the time. <laughs> I have turned. You know, I is something I've talked about a few times is that over the last year, I've really kind of you know, I I got to a point where that was happening a lot, not just in the alternative scene, but kind of in general, where I was like, I don't really get it. Like, there's the stuff right. I the stuff I like. There there are artists that I really enjoy that have been able to thrive and develop a really cool community outside of what would be quote unquote mainstream success. And I, I dig that stuff, but there's not necessarily an audience for reading about a lot of that stuff all the time. So I really wanted to challenge myself to appreciate the things that I didn't get. 21 pilots is one of those things that I don't get. And I still don't get, um, I can appreciate, I get why for the same reasons you did my, they, they fill a space that bands have filled before them and will continue to fill after them in mainstream culture. And I get it. I get that. It's just, I want to understand the community around it. That's kind of been my new challenge. So, I mean, a a recent example, as you know, you and I have talked about a lot, like EDM last year, that was EDM for me. And this year it's kind of become something that I've gotten like knee deep in to the point where this morning I was like just listening to someone's electric daisy carnival performance. And I was like, who am I? Like I have become that guy who's just like, listen to a mix. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 that's what I was going to ask you is how, how did you kind of find EDM? How did you kind of uh, get interested in it? Well, I, um, I'm a big believer that as, 
where local scenes go, so goes the national scene. So I feel like the pop punk bubble started to burst for me no later than 2015. It was pretty much already dead and done by then. We're like two years post-pop punk now, and nothing in the alternative scene has necessarily filled that void. There's all these like hip indie rock bands and people who decided existentialism is a new topic again, but by and large, there isn't like a, a movement, so to say. Like There's not like, oh, all the bands sound like this anymore. Uh, in alternative music. And so I, so I started to think about like, well, where did I find what I love? Like, how did I get into alternative music? So I went back to the Midwest where the scene that gave me my love for alternative in the first place, I was like, so what's, what's killing it there? Cause the venue still exists. The people still exist. They have to be going to see something. So, um, my buddy, Chad Verway is one of the talent buyers at the intersection in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is one of the top 25 venues in the country for ticket sales annually. And I was like, dude, you guys are selling out shows all the time. But I know that the bands that were popular in the early 2010s are not selling like they used to. And he would even tell me, he'd be like, oh man, we brought in the Devil Wears Prada and they sold 400 seats, 400 tickets to our 1200 person room or something like that. And I was like, well, who's selling out? And he started to tell me about these EDM acts. And at first they were like uh, some names that maybe I'd heard through the grapevine. And I was like, whatever, DJs, I get it. That's fine. But then... Um, it really started to change last summer, and it's been like this for a while now, but last summer, they've reached this point at the intersection now where they have two venues, a room in the back that holds like 1,800 people and a room up front that does something more like uh, 700, 750, 800 people. And they can put any DJ in either of those rooms any night of the week, Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday, they can have shows in both rooms, and every single one of them will sell out. It doesn't matter who the DJ is. Wow. It's like... So, so I would say in the last year, like the amount of EDM that they bring in the door has become at least 50%, 60, 65% of their capacity. And I've gone to DJs that I've never heard about. And I like to think that I'm somewhat connected. I've been doing this for a while. I know a lot of, you know, EDM names. I see stuff on posters, but I would go in and I'd be like, who's performing tonight? And they would rattle off four DJs whose names I'd never heard. And I'd be like, oh, is it going to be at capacity? And they'd be like, oh, it's been sold out for weeks. And if it doesn't sell out, the kids will come tonight. It doesn't matter. They'll just show up. And they have like... And so I got fascinated by that. And I, at first I was like, that's dumb. It's just dumb. I don't know why, but it's just... Because I have, I have all these preconceived notions about EDM culture. And a lot of them are based... Oh, yeah. A lot of them are, have turned out to be based in truth. But I was like, you know... The reason that I, I became proficient in what I do in alternative music and the reason that I'm lucky enough to be invited on things like your podcast is because I really committed myself to understanding it from the perspective of somebody who lives it. And so this year and uh, starting especially at New Year's, essentially, I've really dedicated myself to I want to understand it. And I don't. I, I swear to you, I don't. <laughs> like, I don't. I can't sit here and like explain it to you yet. But I'm on my way. And my writing about it, I feel like, has gotten a lot better over time. And I've, I just did my first print feature interview with an artist from that realm, like a major artist, where I was like, okay, I was nervous the way that you were nervous the first time you did an interview. Because I was like, oh, I'm going to sound like an idiot. Like, all of a sudden, the guy who's been, you know, like, I've been writing about music for like a decade now. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing again. And it, it's exciting. Yeah, that, it's weird isn't it yeah uh, so my my first introduction to the world of edm was about it would have been four years ago um i was working for PETA on tour uh 
and I get a call from my boss and uh, we were on tour with like Story of the Year and Hawthorne Heights and Silverstein and Set It Off, which are, you know, all these like alternative bands that I really enjoyed. So I was like, cool, like I get to talk to people about a cause I'm passionate about. I really enjoy these shows because I like the bands. Um, I get the people. And then my boss calls me and says, hey, we're going to fly you out to do the Steve Aoki tour for a week. Um, and it was a wild experience. Uh, and ended up doing Steve Aoki for a couple weeks. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. But my my first impression, uh, you know, aside from, again, some of the stereotypes that I think we all have was, wow, like people people are coming and they're they're having fun they're finding some kind of release in this um you know the same way that I would go to whatever punk or alternative show and just feel like I was releasing all my frustrations from the day from that week people are finding that in this um I did I've done one interview with a DJ grammatic uh, and that was like two and a half years ago uh and, and the same thing about that that you said James I had no idea how to approach it. And I still feel like, and I, I want to, I want to understand it. Um, and maybe, maybe what I need to do is just go to more, more EDM shows, see more DJs live, just keep listening to it and keep reading about it. But it's, it's weird. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to understand. Well, um, uh, this is not my uh, insight. It's actually, I'm pretty sure it's it's me and Jesse Cannon talked about this not long ago, and it kind of came down to when you write about music. It's music is a lot of different things, but in the case of most bands and groups, music is the result of several very different personalities coming together to create one thing that relies on all of them doing a certain skill very proficiently. And in the in the world of music, it's at most two guys, sometimes three. Uh, and they're at, in a room with a machine that does everything perfectly, and it's more the way that they customize it that is what defines them as people. It's not the perfection, the proficiency as much as it is how they set themselves apart from doing something very proficiently. And there's a, there's a technical aspect to it that doesn't exist in uh, the rock world. There's also a live production value. The, the reason people go to the shows, the, what people get out of the live shows, the way the live shows run, it's all so different. You know, like I was just at, I did two festivals in June, one of them being Spring Awakening. Every day, eight hours of music across four stages. Every artist plays for one full hour. That's unheard of at like a rock or alternative right so every and there's and the music never stops they play for an hour and when they get to like the last five minutes the other group kind of comes out and they set up their gear next to them they always have like multiple ports and the other person sets up and one dj basically kind of spins down and the other one spins up and they just start and the music never stops and it is and, and so it's great because like you get to see everyone do these crazy sets and that's awesome but at the same time if someone's not good you got an hour of that so there's, you know, there's the give and the take of that too. But then there's also, you know, it's, it's like everything It's subjective in a way that I don't think rock and roll is subjective because there's not, there's not always lyrics. You know what I mean? There's not always like, oh, I don't like the way this makes me right. feel. There's like a technical aspect to why you might not like something. Right. I mean, but I was, you know, and, and a couple weeks ago when uh, I, you know, I was just, when I was realizing, okay, I really want to sit down and start figuring out EDM. Um. I had been listening to a bunch of stuff for a few days and I sat down and just kind of spurted like several several hundred words of 
pretty much complete nonsense, uh, and, and this is a thing that will probably never see the light of day. Um, but what my my base level analysis was, and, and this is, again, this might be something that I'm thinking way too far into, um, there's something very human about it, I guess, in a way, about something that can connect people from from all walks of life and from all cultures you know in a way that realistically rock music can't because it has lyrics and if you don't speak that language you know okay yeah there's stories of you know an english-speaking band goes to japan and all the fans learn english so they can learn the songs but you know in a way when you remove the lyrics entirely it's just about these sounds and how you connect to them um yeah i mean that that's very uh it's very primal in a way yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think in a sense, you know, taps into some of that, you know, primal human emotion and connection. Um, we did, I think it would have been at a Steve Aoki show in New York that I was doing with PETA. Um, someone, you know, I gave them like free stickers or whatever, and someone gave me a plur bracelet and like explained what it meant. And I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing. Um, and, and again, you know, maybe this is, me thinking thinking more into it uh than everyone does but I, I don't know ultimately what i understand is that people are people get something out of it they feel some kind of connection um so i i want to understand that my my thinking the more i am exposed to it and i think i don't think that you're overthinking it i think that most people it's like anything else i if you read an outsider's critique of your favorite band you would probably think that they were overthinking it oh, because because when you love something when you love something you just you're like i, I just love it like i just it, it speaks to me on a level and most people never really deep like only writers pick apart why they have that deep love most people are just like i don't i can't tell you why i love this thing it's just it speaks to me in the case of edm i do think it, it it's 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 very primal it's primal in a way that like it, it beckons back to like a, a tribal thing it's a very communal idea all these people get together with for what is basically drum and bass and dance like like that's the thing about these festivals is it's 40,000 people at a time dancing there's no there's rarely moshing there's no fighting there's no violence there's like just people trying to have a good time in like a very large group and i i think that part of the lack of lyrics but also the type of sounds being produced there's it's a, it's jarring just enough to shake you from you know, whatever it is that's concerning you in the world. And in my experience, the sound is so much louder than most rock festivals at these EDM festivals. Like the ground literally shakes with the bass that, that for eight hours, you know, with, especially when it's dark and the lights and the fire and all that is happening, it's like, you can't even try to think about anything else because you're just, you have to be in the moment. It, it demands that you be in the moment. So you know, when you were, when you were at these festivals just now, were you just going like, uh, as a fan to attend or were you going for the purpose of like doing you know media coverage i have uh, some artists that i want to see really so like uh like marshmallow is really my i think everyone has like that artist that carries them into edm and it's not always the best artist in edm it's, it just goes back to the right. thing there's something about it that just it works for you 
And so for me, like I've had a lot that I've liked over the years, but marshmallow I really got into. So in, in December, I went to Denver for New Year's to this major, this big festival called Decadence. It's like the biggest New Year's Eve party in the country. It's 60,000 people, two days of EDM, and like the chain smokers were there and marshmallow and all these people. So I went primarily to see marshmallow because I wanted to, but it was more of the idea of like, okay, this is one of the biggest events in North America for this genre. It's happening on New Year's. If there's ever a moment to like, get into the trenches this is it um so we did that and and i didn't write a lot about the experience i ended up taking most of it in and then mostly running a photo post and i did a little bit more with spring awakening but i'm still ramping up to like in my head i've written a lot of really good rock reviews that kind of play never to the quality of it in the style of like a hunter s thompson where it's really a a a narrative about your experience moving through a live event and and I, i love the idea of capturing that in an edm sense but as an outsider you you fear because this is a genre that is so often misunderstood i think by people in the alternative community that i i fear i fear playing into tropes or anything like that because like like the first time i went to an edm show i was like i'm not going to drink i'm not going to do any drugs or anything like that i'm going to experience it sober because if i can't appreciate it sober then then like then that the thing isn't edm it's all the other stuff about edm and so once i got through that i was like okay well then maybe i could have a few drinks or maybe i could do this or do that and you can do all that but in capturing that and a narrative for people that don't understand it you never want them to take it and be like oh it's just you know it's just an excuse to do drugs or an excuse to party and i would never want to paint the scene that way and i haven't figured out a way to write about the experience of being there because it does end up being a big party but not in the sense of like this big nihilistic nothing matters so fuck it all let's just dance and have a good time it's not that it's something a lot more positive and hopeful in a weird way I, i mean any I don't know. I just read something. I want to say it was on Billboard about like you know ten things you missed at Electric Forest, um, and it was just all these like really positive things. And it ended with saying the biggest thing you missed was the love, mm-hmm. um, which is something you know ag- again. And and Logan, maybe you can even weigh in here because I'm I'm curious your perspective on uh, you know on EDM because I know you haven't really done you know dove into it as much as James and I have. Um, but people have this this stigma. I, I hate I hate the word stigma. People have this, you know, perhaps misconception, but maybe that's that's misunderstanding of, you know, what it is, what it's about. Um, but yet at the same time, you know, some at least two that I can think of, um, Skrillex and then another artist that uh, James, you and I have talked about, Ghastly, are people who like used to be in scene bands like and now they're DJs like how how does that happen why does that happen i i think that's fascinating no i mean it is interesting i think it's you know i'm honestly not like too like familiar with it you know i don't i i don't i don't know i've never really gotten into edm music in that kind of way um, but I understand, I mean, I know obviously people have this negative connotation of it, but James, I think is pretty spot on with it. It's, it's not really just what it is to everyone who looks at it from an outside perspective, you know? I mean, I think there are people, there are obviously certainly people who do go there for just those things, but that's with any kind of, you know, music scene, really. You know, you always have this, I guess you can look at it from a negative light, and there's always someone who kind of brings that on to it, and then it just kind of gets carried away from there. But, you know, as far as, I don't know, you know, I think it's an interesting, 
thing to bring up as to why, you know, maybe former members of scene bands or whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever you want to label those bands as kind of move to that direction. I don't know. It's probably just a maturity thing, obviously, but I don't know if there's any particular reason. Well, I think it's it's a maturity thing. I think it's a I think it's a money thing. I think Skrillex. I don't know how um, Sonny got interested in the genre, but I think when other artists started to see what he was able to do, because Sonny represented somebody who was a self-made, successful, independent artist who was still struggling to get over the five hundred dollar a night, you know show like he couldn't oh, yeah. like they, they had hit this glass ceiling everyone loved them and it was like how do i get any bigger and then he cracked the code and everyone else was like well if i can figure out how to do something like that that'll take off and it's funny because for a short while there there were a ton of skrillex imitators and now that that's kind of moved to the side but in, in the case of ghastly like he was a metalcore front man who saw what skrillex was doing got interested in that kind of music and then Skrillex actually turned around and helped him get some exposure and brought him to the masses and he brought those sensibilities to EDM and I think when artists do that, when they when they come from one world and go to the other, they make it easier for fans to do the same because like Gasly has been seen performing in like scene band t-shirts for a long time. He used to do that and you know he, you and I, I know Molly, you and I have heard this uh, this jimmy world remix that he did that he couldn't he didn't get to officially release because the band wasn't into it but uh he does those things where all of a sudden it's more accessible like you're more like you're 90 percent more in, likely to try out edm because that jimmy world remix exists because you like sweetness oh, you know what i mean totally. and i uh i mean i was down in in florida with family last week and uh my one you know my cousin and i were talking about uh i think we were talking about the hotelier he was like, do you like this band, The Hotelier? And I was like, yes, um, of course I love The Hotelier. I get so emo to that band on a regular basis. Um, Same. And, right. And uh, so we we talked about some of our favorite bands, and I mentioned that remix. Um, and this, you know, my cousin has never been at all interested in EDM, but, you know, you have that, something like that, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's an interest. Like, I... Uh, I think last year, so one of my favorite bands is Walk the Moon, which are, you know, mainstream, like pop, rock, indie, indie pop, indie rock band, I guess. Uh, but they're a very mainstream band. Um, but they're, you know, they did a song with Steve Aoki called Back to You. And I heard that and I was fascinated. And I, you know, even even despite having done that Steve Aoki tour a few years back, probably never would have really taken the time to listen to his, his music if it wasn't for, you know, something like that, where I had that connection that was pulling me in and really piquing my interest. Like, oh, okay, this is, this is something I should listen to. Exactly. And it's, it's things like that that make EDM more accessible. And then hopefully people, you know, take it upon themselves to look into it further. And, you know, it's things like SoundCloud and Spotify have made it a lot easier for that to happen, I think. Um, the problem, the only problem being now is that a lot of these really cool remixes that artists do don't get to be able to be shared because of copyrights and everyone has to get paid and all good reasons, but it does kind of stifle the discovery process. But someone like Ghastly, you know, you hear that Sweetness remix and then you take it upon yourself to check out something else he's done. Maybe you hear We Might Fall, a completely different kind of song. You enjoy that. Tr you enjoy that song. Yeah, you enjoy that song, and then you're like, okay, maybe Spotify a genius, and then all of a sudden you're listening to 15 artists that sound like Ghastly, and then before you know it, you have 
like a taste in EDM music. You might not know what it's called because there are like a hundred subgenres of EDM, but you you have yeah, something that you like. <laughs> which I mean, I, I think Spotify is really cool for that. Um, I, you know, Spotify came like was available in the U.S. It was 2011. I, I just looked this up. Um, July 2011. It was first available in the U.S. And that was a couple months after I started writing about music. And I started like, you know, not too long after that, I would, I and, and people who wrote for my website would make these like Spotify playlists and share them on the site and like try to get people to check out all these bands through playlists and no one got it. So it was at that time, you know, the idea of like playlists um, was, you know, maybe, maybe it was how we went about it, you know, who knows, but it was it didn't take off but it's just so completely changed the way we consume and discover music and i'm you know i i think as many of us writers are are probably feeling writers and and people who work in music in general are feeling it's well it is changing how our our careers look but the question is how and and how do we you know prepare ourselves so we can be you know one of the people at the front of the pack and and doing something that's still relevant um but you know still relevant how do we prepare ourselves for that future and and it's interesting because you don't always know i think you you never know how technology is going to change um culture and, and music in general until it happens absolutely i couldn't agree more um and I think it's, I mean, I think the a big topic of conversation lately, and this is something I wanted to get into, um, is, you know, people, some people have said that music blogs are dead now, that, okay, we have Spotify, like, no one, you know, we don't need, we don't need music blogs anymore, we have Spotify. Um, I don't know, I guess it's a question for both of you, like, do you think music blogs are, quote unquote, dead or dying um or or is that is that shifting and how how can we work work together uh with you know with spotify and streaming and all these technologies you know i i suppose personally i hope it's not dying um i i think it right of course i I think it's changing i don't i don't know if i would say it's dead at the moment um i think it's I don't know. I think it's certainly lost a little bit of steam, um, and I don't know how much of that we want to, how much credit we want to give to Spotify for that. You can probably give a decent amount. Obviously, discovering music now is much easier than it's ever been, um, and you know you can just click through the related artists forever in a sense, I guess. In theory, you could, and just keep finding similar artists. However, I will say one time I went to Limp Biscuit. Don't ask. I went to Limp Biscuit's related artists, and Blink One Eighty Two was there. So it's not always accurate, but like in theory, you could do something like that and just always find new bands that way. But it's kind of hard at the same time to keep up on certain things, unless I mean, I guess you could you know follow every band you've ever wanted to follow on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or things like that. But I think as far as music blogs go and music websites, they're not necessarily dead. I think maybe there is going to be some kind of adaption that is needed at some point, probably in the near future, but I'm not exactly sure what that would be. Well, I, uh, I don't know where I stand on the topic. I think it's, 
the question that I always ask people that ask me whether or not music blogs are dead or dying is this. When was the last time you discovered a new music blog that you really loved? You're both very quiet. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, it, no, it, it is a good question. Um, and I think something, and this could be, you know, a, a complete bias of like who who I'm Facebook friends with and what kind of people I talk to on the internet and everything. Um, I, I feel like I see more and more blogs and websites over the past several years that are just covering you know quote unquote the same bands that are not a place I would really go to to discover new music um and, and you know it's I think part of it is like the type of content maybe they share um are they focusing on on like photos of live shows or are they doing that as well as you know okay hey here's this new band you need to check out listen to this song here's an interview to get to know this new artist um I don't know I haven't I feel like I haven't seen a a lot of new blogs um over the past couple of years maybe, maybe I'm not looking in the right places I don't know uh, but then again I find I I can't remember the website, but I read a really good interview with the band Free Throw earlier today that I thought was awesome. Well, you know, I uh, I often ask people, I often also ask people to tell me how many music blogs they can name off the top of their head, and most people can give me maybe five or six, maybe ten, twenty on a good day. But I, uh, you know, I work at Holix, so I kind of have some insider baseball knowledge of like how many people get contacted. I know that. You know, easily more than a hundred thousand promos get sent out every month on Holix. I know some publicists who have between their A and B list, which you know, top tier and then second tier, have eight hundred contacts. So if we say that even half of those are duplicates of the same site, that's four hundred websites. Um, and I don't doubt that there are more happening every day, but I think you hit on the, a big key, which is the type of content they're putting out. I think the role of a music blog in the ecosystem of the industry has changed, but not at a speed that bloggers themselves can catch up to because blogging traditionally for newcomers is a way to get your foot in the door. So they aren't really in a position where they can offer a lot of deep insight and they have to, you have to build that up. You have to write a bunch before you can actually have something to say. It's kind of the catch 22 of creativity. You have to do it a bunch very poorly before you have anything worthwhile to say. Um, so I think a problem with a lot of these young blogs is they don't really have anything to say. They might know the right bands. Like a lot of them, I think, are on to the right sound. A lot of them, you know, are on Bandcamp, they're on SoundCloud, they're on Spotify, they're keeping their ear to their local scene, but they don't have the writing talent needed to really make a mark through their site. Their taste can make a mark, perhaps, but what's happening is that what used to be a buzz band that the alternative scene would break because, you know, Property Zach would cover it, Under the Gun covered it, and Ultra the Press covered it, and Absolute Punk covered it. Now, those same bands are getting a premiere on Pitchfork or Stereo Gum. Which is... Which which is good for the band. Yeah. yeah. Good, good for the scene, but... But all that's really fleeting in a way because because the problem is is that a lot of those sites, Billboard, Uprocks, those things, they they help bands by doing this one really cool premiere. And this is a problem that we talk about at Substream a lot because we are very guilty about this on a micro level. Is that we work with a band once because they offer us something cool. We maybe cover them one or two more times because whatever happens next happens in close proximity to the cool thing we did, and then we never talk about them again until the next album comes out. Um, 
I, the trick to developing a, an audience in music writing has always been to write about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. You want to, you want, you want the people who like that band to look at you as being the number one resource on all things that band. That's what Property is that got so right. He, they were so good at that. He placed, they were so good. and it, and it's all it's also a matter of bets. You know what I mean? Like uh, under the gun every month we would pick five artists that we really wanted to focus on that month and sometimes we got it right and a lot of the time we got it wrong zach placed his bets on some bands that paid off in huge ways and some artists that you know under the gun shows years ago are just now getting it kyle super duper kyle is on the cover of xxl right now as a 2017 freshman under the gun covered him as an artist to watch in 2012 so like those some of those things are still kind of coming full circle and it's like okay well the the tale of the blogging paying off is a, you know right, a, a little bit right. longer than the site itself at this point you know what i mean yeah um but i think I think there is a place for music blogging in curation because, is it, like you said, Logan. Though I, I love Blink One Eighty Two, and I have paid to see Blink, I have paid to see Limp Bizkit live within the last five years, so I am that cross section. Um, <laughs> but I wonder I, how big the cross section is. I think for people that are like my age, it's massive because those two bands essentially, those two bands broke the same way at the same time. They both broke because of MTV's TRL with Carson Daly. The Blink-182 video and the Limp Bizkit video for Faith, both not that far apart in terms of release, 1999. And they both kind of hit that same demo of like, fuck my parents. This this is not the kind of thing that you would expect to see on TV, but here it is on TV at 3.45 3.45 in the afternoon. Like there's, a, I think there's a massive crossover there. But I do think that curation on Spotify can be a little lacking in all streaming purposes. So I think that that's really where blogs are coming into play. There's more music than ever before. We have more access to it than ever before. But what the hell should we be listening to? That's what blogs should be telling us. Yeah, and I'm right there with you too because I like both of those bands. I mean. It's funny because I haven't paid to see Limp Bizkit recently because I haven't been here, but like I would probably pay to see them, and I don't have too much shame in that. It was amazing. It was a it was a fan. They played all the hits. It was great. I recommend everyone who has ever liked Limp Bizkit see them. I know it's it's funny. I have a lot of guilty pleasures. It's just it's part of my like whole I guess personality online is that I like things that people don't expect me to like. <laughs> yeah, I mean I. Uh... I had a a moment a couple years ago. Um, I uh, like Taylor Swift when I first started driving, um, and I first got my license, and I went to high school that was pretty far away. So I spent a lot of time listening to the radio, uh, and this was like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and Taylor Swift was on the radio all the time because you know of course she is, um, and but I was always kind of like oh I can never tell anyone I listen to Taylor Swift. Um, and then a couple years later in college, one of my roommates had all these Taylor Swift posters in her room. And I was like, you know what, this is, and, and, and this roommate, you know, to be fair, is someone who on the surface, uh, I guess looks more like your quote unquote typical Taylor Swift fan, uh, than, than perhaps I do, I guess. Um, but I kind of realized that why, like, why the hell should I not you know should i limit my music taste um into into certain things i love taylor swift i'll say that and i'll tell you this um 
in my experience, some of my best success in terms of like long-term growth or in terms of audience retention as a writer has come from embracing those things that I think people will think are weird about me. Like for like your Taylor Swift thing is my being like probably the only male One Direction fan in alternative music blogging, <laughs> you know, um, and that's like a torch I've carried for a long time. I know, but so like a few years ago, I got offered to I like I wanted to go, but it's the same thing as the EDM thing. I didn't I didn't get it. Like I used to love boy bands, and I didn't get this new wave of boy bands. And then I listened, and I got it to the point that like I've written like tens of thousands of words on One Direction, and I still do. I look for any excuse to write about my love of One Direction, and it's silly. I'm gonna go find all of your writing right? on One it's Direction. It's silly. It's it's super silly, but like that, and like another example on the film side is like I've really made a mark as like a guy who loves Nicolas Cage, and in, in a weird way, where it's not like creepy. That sounds strange, but uh, I, I made a game. Uh, he he has he has over eighty movies. Sixty some of them have been released on home video, and I or seventy some, and I have made it a, a personal life goal to own all of them at some point. And so I made a game out of my Twitter feed about trying to find physical copies of all of his movies. Meanwhile, also writing about the new ones as they come out on Substream. And nowadays, like if I write about Nicolas Cage, that review or feature is guaranteed to do twice as well as my average Substream feature, just because I've kind of got this weird niche of creeps online who are like, yeah, Nicolas Cage is cool, James. And we talk about it. And, and so I always tell people, like, whatever you think is that thing people don't want to know about you, that is probably the thing they will be most interested in knowing more about. Yeah, I, I mean, I had like I, I had a moment earlier this year with Walk the Moon specifically um, where I realized, you know, I had written about them because I worked for Access.com um, writing and doing photography for them for about a year and a half uh, from 2014 to 2015. Um and, you know, through that, I mostly focused on the more mainstream stuff because um, they they had me covering like pop and indie rock. So I, I did most of this like more mainstream stuff, um, including, you know, going to see Walk the Moon in New York and like photographing and reviewing that show. And still to this day, I have un until earlier this year had never written about them on my own blog, Circles and Soundwaves. And I had this idea that, well, I have, you know, like a certain thing that I cover and that's it. And I don't want to stray outside of that. And then I kind of realized, fuck that. I can't, I, you know, I luckily have the creative freedom to do what I want. And I just wrote this thing about, it was literally called why I love walk the moon so much. Uh, and people, people dug it, you know? And, and again, I think like you said, James, that people, were maybe surprised to hear it, but I was pleasantly surprised that people liked hearing it. <laughs> exactly. And, it, you know, it's, it's kind of that weird thing where, you know, it, you're always afraid to be your true self because you don't think your closest friends will understand it. And then you, you are and they oh, do. Yeah. And it's oh, yeah. okay. But it's strangers on the internet. It's this weird gray area where it's the people who are absolutely closest to you, you can be, you know, uh, painfully, brutally horrifyingly honest with and then complete strangers on the internet but anyone that's between those two you overthink till you die that's pretty much how i think it works <laughs> there are things i there are things i never want my parents to know about me like that i have definitely that if people that listen to not quite's first episode there's like a billion facts about myself that like my i, I know my parents don't listen to the podcast because i would have gotten a phone call 
Um, right. And I'm just like, but it's okay because like that show works as therapy for me. And not to plug another podcast in, in your podcast, but but that's like an example oh, I, of like that's my true self. And the, the amount of feedback I've right. gotten from being that version of myself has been better than my normal just daily writer person. Right. Which which is cool. And I had, you know, I wrote uh would have been like two weeks ago i wrote a review of the new free throw record um and i wasn't like really intending to write a review because i was you know i was pretty busy and i was like well i have this interview with the band set up i don't need to write a review uh but i realized i had a lot to say and a lot of it was very personal um you know talking about issues that i've had with anxiety over the years as well as issues with body image which you know i've talked about uh, my mental health <laughs> on the internet and stuff, but I never really talked about body image. Uh, and I, I put that out there in that review and people liked it. And like people that I didn't think were going to care, like shared it on Facebook and were like, this is the best thing I've ever read. Da-da-da. Like, wow. You know, I'm can't wait to listen to this album. Um, but it's, it's kind of cool. Nice. I think when you put yourself out there like that and then you are able to, you know, get, get feedback and make that connection with people. Um, cause I think it, it, you know, helps humanize the, the writer person, um, you know, when you share a little bit of yourself. Absolutely. And that's why I think, uh, things like this podcast are so good and will be good for you and your careers because a podcast for a writer is ultimately, uh, that it's that insight into yourself, but in like a streamlined kind of way, because more than video and, or, and your writing extensively more than your writing, people can take this podcast anywhere they want to go. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I didn't get to 360 days of listening to podcasts very easily, but I listen to it all the time. I listen to it at the gym, on my way to the gym, in the morning, in the shower, I'm listening to podcasts. Like there are, there are people that I've never actually spent time with that I have spent, I've been able to spend days of my and their life with through podcasting. And then when they do something that's in their wheelhouse, whether it be a comedian or a musician or a writer, I'm more inclined to check it out because I have this relationship with them that feels very intimate despite not actually being physically present. Right, which is really, really cool. And I think that's important. I had, you know, a couple of years ago, I put up an interview with major league um which are you know were one of my favorite bands as i said before um and this kid from new zealand found the interview and like reached out to me and and this was like a stranger from new zealand literally the opposite side of the globe and goes hey like what brian said in this interview like connected with me and it's it's cool to to you know reach people like that um yeah, I don't know, Logan, I don't know if you have anything to say on, on that kind of subject matter. I mean, it is it is cool, and it's, it's very strange at the same time to think about it, you know, and realize that people are reading this or listening to this, and, you know, this sense from kind of wherever, and, you know, you don't really know, I mean, I know James said he listens to it in the morning when he's getting ready in the shower on the way to work out and things like that, so the thing that people are still, like, doing that in their situations, you know, and I think it's kind of weird to have that realization. And I've always wondered that, you know, think about it like from an artist's perspective, you know, there's, if you're in like a band that's kind of gaining traction or 
anything like that. You know, some kids are out there probably going to tattoo like your lyrics on them. And that's just strange to me. Like, it's not weird. Like I'm saying tattoos are weird. I think that would just be like a weird, like feeling to kind of like sit there and just one day, like you wake up and you're like, holy shit, like this is a thing, you know, yeah. and you know, we're going to, we're going to do this today and people are going to listen to it or I'm going to write this lyric and maybe someone's going to get, you know, get it tattooed on them and things like that have always been so cool to me. No, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that anyone would take time out of their day or skin out of their flesh and be like, no, I, I'm going to give it to you because you know you. And you're like, I don't think I'm worth that. Yeah, no. At I mean, least that's I how I feel. I didn't, I didn't mean to say you weren't worth that, but that's, that's how I yeah, always feel. Like, anytime, <laughs> anytime something does really well, I'm always like, man, if those people knew how boring I was in real life... <laughs> Not quite right. makes me sound a lot cooler than I am, but it's condensed right. madness. I thought it was good, though. I, you know, I, I mean, I know we talked about it, but um, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing more from it. Um, so I, uh, we've been going on for about an hour and a half. I don't want to keep you too much longer, James. Um, okay. I mean, do you have anything else you uh want to say or uh, can I tell can I tell people what what not quite is about because it's since it's kind of a yes. weird thing. Um, (laughs) so not quite as a podcast that I co-host with my buddy Ben Leach, who was, uh, the front man in a band called you, me and everyone we know more importantly, he's just a good friend. He's a great example of that thing full circle. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how it's weird when you become friends with musicians that you look up to. I used to look up to Ben when I was in college, I ordered the very first you, me and everyone we know EP from Ben when he was in school and he sent it to me with like a handwritten letter thanking me for it on like a CDR. Um, and now, uh, more than a decade later, we're co-hosting a podcast together <laughs> about how life didn't go as planned, which I guess is how it always kind of goes. But the concept of Not Quite is that Ben and I have both pretty much been able to do everything we wanted to do in life. We, we had dreams, we've achieved them to some degree, and then we realized that life just keeps going. You just keep waking up and you have to keep figuring things out. And along the way, we accrued some problems. Ben struggled with addiction. He uh, famously spent a whole bunch of tour money on drinking and had to pay all that back and lost his band members and all this stuff. He's now married. He just became a personal trainer. He has crazy physical, physical and nutritional fitness guidelines that he lives by. He's really trying to hold his life together, and he struggles with it all the time. So that's his thing. And my thing is that I, uh, I'm going through a divorce that just kind of came out of the blue within the last month. And on top of that, I have to move and uproot my entire life. And the, the flux of working in the writing side of the industry, a lot of what we talked about in this episode kind of becomes a recurring theme on the show. And we basically kind of take talk about how we're going to keep going. Ben's in his early 30s. I'm about to turn 30. And Molly, you can attest to this. You know a lot of people who are quote-unquote working in the music industry right now that are your age. I bet if I asked you to name a bunch of people who are my age that work in the music industry, you don't know as many. Oh, definitely not as many. Right? There's there's a drop-off rate. So I've always lived by the mantra that your hero should always be older than you. You should always be looking up to somebody that's five to ten years older than you and asking yourself how you can become who they are. And Ben and I have both reached a position now where we're in our early 30s and we're not really sure who we want to be when we're 40. So this podcast is about figuring out all of that and how music has kind of shaped our lives to where they are now and hopefully will continue to shape it moving forward. But it's it's a bit of a therapy podcast. It sounds very depressing hearing myself explain it right now, but uh, it's fun. We have laughs. I didn't feel feel depressed when I listened to it. Well, that's good. 
It's a bum. Yeah. It's, it's, the first episode is a bit of a bummer. We kind of drop a bunch of bombshells on you about kind of how things have happened. <laughs> episode two isn't out yet. It's a little bit happier. It's not as long. We're recording episode three tomorrow. I had this crazy Twitter meltdown where I talked about like fear of die, all this crazy stuff that, uh, that we're going to talk about in tomorrow's episode. That's just kind of like an insight into my own personal crazy anxiety and like what it's like to get divorced out of the blue and all this craziness. So if that sounds like a good time and i promise you that it is a it, molly attested it is more fun than it sounds it should be um it's 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 really helping me and i've gotten these crazy emails from people we got a guy who was 58 years old emailed us and was like i listened to this i don't know either of you but it really connected with me molly you reached out to me i have this twitter follower whose name like it doesn't matter it's some made-up name it's like never tap out or something they don't have a twitter icon like they don't have like a it's like a blank face you know what i mean like it used to be a bird now it's like a like a silhouette um they only follow like 12 people one of them is me and they dm me motivational messages every day i don't know who they are they won't tell me their identity but they're like i really connected with not quite and i just want to be there to support you and it's not important who i am and so they're kind of a weirdo i hope they're not going to murder me but it's uh it's been a, i hope it it's been a wild adventure and the show has kind of really found an audience with only one episode out into the world so it's a good time to join in uh episode two will be out hopefully this week and episode three is recorded tomorrow so it should be out shortly thereafter very cool. So, uh, James, um, well, first of all, it was wonderful to actually talk to you after, you know, talking on the internet uh, back and forth for a little bit, for a couple of years, actually, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm so glad we got to chat and have you on the show. Um, where can people keep up with you and your, your various podcasts and, <laughs> and writing efforts on the internet? Um, well, uh, default jamesshotwell.com. Pretty easy. It has links to everything on it. Um, my Twitter is James D. Shotwell, And then I tell people to read the Holix blog. Holix is what pays my bills. It's what allows me to do not quite and do substream. It's my full-time job. It pays my insurance. And I'm very thankful to have it. So everyone should support Holix and holixdaily.com. That's, that's where you should go to support me. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you again, James. Um, to everyone listening, uh, you can follow Perspective on Twitter at Perspective underscore pod, P-O-D. I can't you believe can you got me. that pod handle. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> I had, thank you. I had to, I sat, actually, I was in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania in a Starbucks killing time before going to see Jimmy Eat World. Um, and we had decided on the name for the show and I, we were like 99% sure. And I said, all right, Logan, I'm going to go to Starbucks before this show and sit down and see if I can get a Twitter handle. And I did. Um, wait, wait, real quick. Sorry. Not to extend this podcast longer than it was. Do you live in, yeah. East, do you live in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania? No, I live in New Jersey. Okay. Um, I spent the longest yeah. day. This is like another conversation for like uh, yeah. something about working on Warped Tour, but I spent the longest day of my life oh, yeah. in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania once upon I'm a time. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it, it is, it is, it was so awful that I have told everybody that I've ever talked about going like tour life, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania always comes up. And so when you said that, I was like, I, I know that yeah, hellhole. I, <laughs> I, uh, you have an off day there? Yeah, had an off day there. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, not, it's, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's all I'll say about Stroudsburg. Uh, but cool. Uh, yeah, there's there's other conversations to dive yes. into there. Thank you. Um, Thank you guys for having me. Seriously, I, I feel honored to be your first yeah. guest. I didn't know I was going to be. I'm sorry to take up so much of yeah. your time. No, I'm, I'm so glad we could do it. Um, Thank you uh, to everyone listening. Uh, we are on iTunes, so please subscribe if you haven't already. Yes, do that.